is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Your premier source for sports news and analysis in Oregon and Washington. Live on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What is up? Welcome to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show, brought to you by the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I am your host, Andy Patton. You can find me on Twitter at Andy Patton PNW, and you can find the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Twitter as well at WWSRN underscore radio. Today is episode two of the show, and we have an outstanding guest lined up for you all today. In Brian Kalbroski. Brian is the managing editor for NBA content at USA Today Sports Media Group. He writes for Hoops Hype and The Rookie Wire, where he has published tons and tons of NBA mock draft, NBA big boards, interviews with pretty much every single NBA draft prospect. He has been all over NBA draft content for way, way longer than he probably should have to have been, considering the NBA draft typically takes place in June. He is going to be on the show a little bit later, and him and I are going to discuss plans for the NBA draft for the Blazers. They have two picks in this draft at number 16 and number 46 overall. We'll discuss what we think they should, could, would do with those picks, and then we're also going to discuss a handful of local Pacific Northwest guys, a couple of guys from the University of Washington, Oregon, of course, my Zags. Have a guy in the draft, Killian Tilly. Looking forward to seeing where he goes. So we'll discuss all of those guys as well. Really looking forward to having him on. First of all, I apologize if it sounds like I have a cold or anything like that. I'm getting through it. We're fighting through it. All of us are fighting right now. This is a good time to remind you all, stay safe, be cognizant, wear a mask. I know many of you are likely located in the Pacific Northwest if you're listening to the show. I know that we've had some some new mandates and that is kind of a stressful, difficult time with planning for the holidays and everything. So I won't bogart too much time discussing that, but please stay safe. Please wear a mask, socially distance whenever you can. Avoid social interactions when you can, at least publicly. Uh, try to get through this all together. And while you're at home or in your car or somewhere socially distance and you're listening to this, I'm really excited to bring you episode two today. Before we get into our conversation with Brian and everything NBA draft related, we got to talk about the Seahawks game. <laughs> and I know it's not going to be everybody's favorite topic because it was a bit of a rough one, but you know, I picked the worst time to start doing a radio show about this team, didn't I? The first subject I typed out for, for episode number one before the Bills game was, does the addition of Carlos Dunlap make this team Super Bowl contenders? That was the first thing I planned to talk about regarding the Seattle Seahawks on my radio show. And now we're having very different conversations. Not because of anything Carlos Dunlap did or didn't do. He's fine. He was good in the first game. He was kind of non-existent in this second game against the Rams. But because things just fell apart really, really fast for this team. In case you somehow missed it, the Seahawks fell to the Los Angeles Rams 23-16. to on what was a disastrous Sunday afternoon for local sports fans. Probably a, an overall disastrous weekend. Technically, University of Washington pulled out a win, so Seattle football fans went one and one, but that was a stressful game too. It didn't make it into my notes. We'll certainly discuss plenty of University of Washington football in future episodes, but whew, 
barely eke out a win against a not very good Oregon State team and then turn around and watch the Seahawks do what they did against the Los Angeles Rams. No fun for anybody. This was I both everybody was bad. Yes, technically this defense allowed the fewest points they have all season. Hooray. There's a, there's a tiny bit of upside. They only gave up 23 points to a pretty good Rams offensive team. That is something to celebrate if you're looking for a silver lining. I'm an endlessly optimistic person. That will probably frustrate some of you. It's why it's frustrating to have two ugly Seahawks games to discuss to start this show. But there's plenty to criticize, too. And I'm, don't worry, I'm going to do it. <laughs> We're going to discuss those things. Russell Wilson was absolutely terrible. We're going to talk about him a little bit more, but this was one of the worst games of his career. You might all remember the Green Bay Packers game from a few years ago. I want to say 2016, 2017. I don't remember exactly. I think he threw five picks, five picks in that game. This game and that game stand out. It's pretty bad ones. I'm sure there was some really bad ones very early in his career before it was known how good of a talent he was going to be. But this game was straight up ugly. He threw the ball 37 times. He only completed 22 of his passes. He threw for 248 yards. He didn't throw a touchdown. He's on, he was on pace up until this game to break touchdown records or at least tie Peyton Manning's record for most touchdowns in a single season. I didn't look at the numbers, but I bet Peyton Manning didn't have any games where he threw straight up zero touchdowns in that season. This is going to set Russ back a lot in that quest. Probably puts him out of the running completely. That's not the important thing. That's not the important thing to me. That's not the important thing to you as fans of the Seahawks. It's probably not the important thing to Russell Wilson either. The man likes to win. He likes to win football games a lot. And this, him and the Seahawks have lost two in a row. Brought them down to six and three on the season. Technically, they're in third place in the NFC West. Now, they have the same record as both the Rams and the Cardinals. And they get Arizona on Thursday night, which will be a huge battle for supremacy in the NFC West. But they put themselves in that position by playing straight up bad on all sides of the ball here. Yeah, the defense was fine, like I said, but it wasn't great. They still got problems on that, but they got more problems right now on the offense. And that's just was not the case through the first seven games of the season at all. The offense was cooking. Russ was cooking. Seahawks Twitter got their wish. They got that they've wanted all season long, all not even season for the last five years, what they've wanted Russell Wilson to cook. And then it just, he got fried for lack of a better, terrible pun. That's what happened here. The Rams figured out how to play against this Seahawks team. The Rams have had Seattle's number for a long time. Sean McVay is a good coach. He's maybe even a great coach, but he is an elite coach against the Seattle Seahawks. Absolutely elite. They have him figured out like nobody's business. Jared Goff looks like a Hall of Famer whenever they play the Seahawks. And it's not because Jared Goff just randomly plays way better. It's because they have a game plan. They know how to execute against the Seattle team. Over the last few years, Seattle's defense, the personnel has changed a ton. A ton. This game had almost a brand new, I think an entirely new secondary against the Rams from who they saw last year. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. The Rams know how to beat this team. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they figured out what seemingly other teams have very much struggled to do, which is you just have to really, really, really stop DK Metcalf. And I, I shouldn't say it like that because I think other teams know to do that and are just not capable of doing it. That's why going out and acquiring a player like Jalen Ramsey is such a big deal 
for the Rams. People look at the Rams and the moves that they made and the amount of draft picks that they gave up and thought, well, you know, how how is this worth it for them to do? They have very little financial flexibility. They have very few draft capital. And yeah, and I can understand why being a Rams fan may not look very good in a couple of years because they're pretty hamstrung with what they can do flexibility-wise. But adding a guy like Ramsey, you saw the impact that it made. And I know there are people who thought Russ should have tried to go to DK a few more times, and maybe he should have. He only threw him the ball four times. He only caught two of them for 28 yards. One of them DK just missed. It wasn't a great ball. Russ didn't have a lot of great balls on Sunday, but it was an okay pass. And DK just let it drop through his fingers. Something we haven't seen a lot of this year. Right? Or excuse me, DK has been highly criticized for drops after his rookie year. It was a problem coming out of college along with the route running thing. This year hasn't been that much of an issue. Just happened at a really critical time in a game where they really needed him to come up with a catch. And it just didn't happen. But beyond that, the Seahawks, they don't have a running game right now. They had 53 rushing yards from players not named Russell Wilson who had 60. All of their running backs are hurt. Chris Carson was out for this game. Carlos Hyde was out for this game. Rashad Penny has not played this year. Alex Collins was the bell cow. He was the lead back. I predicted that before the game. My bold prediction was Alex Collins will lead this team in rushing and score a touchdown. Gotta say, I'm glad I was two for two on that. I'm glad I was one for two, at least on that. I'm glad I got the touchdown right. <laughs> the fact that he led the team in rushing with 43 yards, not a great sign. Not a great thing. He carried the ball 11 times for 43 yards. That's okay. That's fine. But the Rams just were able to game plan of, okay, the Seahawks can't run. They can't pass protect. And if we shut down DK Metcalf, they can't do much of anything. And they were right. (laughs) Their gamble paid off really well. Russ was constantly flushed out of the pocket by poor protection. Russ couldn't look to DK to be his bailout guy. He couldn't throw vertically down the field to DK or lock it because they locked him up really well. So he ended up throwing, I think he completed passes to like eight or nine different guys in this game. Tons of little wheel routes, tons of times where he went all the way through his progression and had to find a, a bailout option in DJ Dallas or Jacob Hollister or David Moore, who were, you know, maybe two or three yards downfield at best, sometimes behind the line of scrimmage a lot of the time. And when Russ did throw the ball vertically, he missed. He missed his targets. He threw a couple bad interceptions. And so I guess that's what I want to talk about. There's two main questions that came out of this game. Two things that Seahawks fans have been wondering. You've seen it on social media everywhere. You've seen it on the other talk shows, the radio, the articles have been written about it. Two big questions. One, what is up with Russell Wilson? Which we've already touched on a little bit, but I'll go into that a little bit more. And two, Does Pete Carroll deserve that five-year extension that he received before this game? I believe right before the Buffalo game is when it was announced. When the Seahawks were 6-1, and things were flying high. Your boy Andy was about to do a whole segment about this, this team being Super Bowl contenders. And then Pete Carroll gets locked up through 2025. Was that a good idea? We'll start with Russ because we've already kind of touched on that a little bit. One of the narratives that's kind of come out after this game that I've seen a lot on social media, many of you probably have as well, is that this is a bad couple of games for Russ. Not just that he had a bad game against the Rams, but he's been bad for a while now, for a few games. People phrase it different ways. I don't think that's really true. Russ, the last few games, has not been the player that he was to begin the season, obviously, when he was a not only an MVP candidate, the clear front runner. For MVP, he was playing out of his mind. 
He was on pace to break Peyton's record, like we already talked about. So he took a dip from that performance against Buffalo in particular. It was not, he was not as bad as he was against the Rams, but he was not as good as he had been before that. And I think people were so frustrated with the Seahawks losing two games in a row, which is rare and should not happen this season. And they were so frustrated with Russell not rebounding from the Buffalo game and being his usual elite self. And they were probably frustrated with the fact that the Seahawks are a Greg Zerline missed field goal away from not having beat the Rams since 2017, which is frustrating too. But this narrative that Russ was bad against Buffalo is just not really true. Russ completed 68% of his passes against the Bills. He threw for 390 yards. He threw for two touchdowns. That's a pretty good day. Yes, he threw the two interceptions, but they were not on the level of the interceptions he threw against the Rams. His interceptions against the Bills were a little bit wonky. He was also facing massive amounts of pressure from the Bills' front seven. They were all over him. They hit him 16 times. That's a season high. Not a season high for Russ, a season high for all quarterbacks in the NFL. No quarterback has been hit more times in a single game than Russell Wilson took against the Bills last Sunday. He also had two fumbles in that game, four total turnovers. Hard to call that a good game. I agree. I'm not saying Russ played good. Well, let's do that grammatically correctly. I'm not saying Russ played well against the Bills, but he didn't play nearly as bad as people kind of want to jam together with this Rams game and say, oh, two really bad performances in a row. One not great performance and then one very bad performance. And the reason I focus on this, the reason I want to separate those two things necessarily is because it's really easy to spin a story and spin a narrative in a way that that makes it seem like Russ had five good games and two really bad games. And instead of kind of the more nuanced that it actually is, <laughs> the fact that Russ was really good, thats that part's true, really, really good elite quarterback play for you know the first six games of the season. And then against Buffalo, we saw a bit of a stumble. We saw some things that were sort of outside of his control. We saw an offensive line take a pretty big dip. We saw a Buffalo defense that seemed very ready for the Seahawks. And we saw a Seahawks team that was missing their running backs. And I think that's such a big part of what this team does. And Alex Collins, to his credit, he runs like Chris Carson. This is why I thought he would lead the team in rushing against the Rams. It's because A.P. Carroll loves him. He brought him back. He was in the program for a long time, obviously. He was gone for the last couple of years. But when they brought him back, they stashed him on the practice squad. And we saw even against the Rams, or excuse me, against the Bills, he didn't get the ball a whole lot. I think he only had two carries in that game, but he did some really good things in blitz pickups. He ran some routes. He was ready for the ball if they needed him to be. And you could just kind of tell that they were ready to let him go and be that guy in this game. But at the end of the day, this team is missing their identity with Chris Carson, with Carlos Hyde, with, with even Rashad Penny. They're missing those guys. And Pete Carroll, we're going to get to him. <laughs> we're going to talk about him and some of the coaching methods that he has used that maybe don't necessarily indicate why he's going to be around through 2025, but we'll, we'll pause, push, push pause on that for right now. But at the end of the day, this team, when they can't, when they are not a threat to run the football opposing defenses, it's a lot easier for them to play against them. Buffalo really just kind of split open the playbook on that. They showed how to do it and Russ still did. Okay. But the Rams took it to a complete another level. I said, we can do that. We can play that lockdown defense. We can get a ton of pressure on Russ, and we can also lock down DK Metcalf. We can take our best defensive player, one of the best defensive players on planet Earth, and put him on one of the most elite physical specimens offensively 
on planet Earth. And if it if it comes anywhere close to even, if it tilts in our favor for the Rams, they knew that they would be able to stop Seattle's offense. And they did. They I mean, That's exactly what happened. So Russ didn't have a lot of help in this game. I'm not going to make excuses for him. I'm willing to defend him against the Buffalo game. Let's put it that way. I'm not, it's hard to defend him for this game. And I don't want people to think that I'm trying to say, oh, Russ actually didn't play that bad. No, he played really bad against the Rams. And it wasn't all, you know, the personnel's fault. It wasn't the coaching staff's fault. It wasn't just a hat tip to Sean McVay. All those things are there and are factors. But at the end of the day, you still expect better from your quarterback. You expect better from a guy who's an MVP candidate two weeks ago. You know, you expect better from a guy who's probably going to be a Hall of Famer, one of the winningest quarterbacks in NFL history through his first nine seasons. Hell, you'd expect better if your quarterback was Sam Darnold or Kyle Allen. This performance is on par with what those guys have looked like this year. And it's not going to be the issue going forward. Russ is going to be fine. But the, the point is that you expected Russ to not just play like a bad, you expected Russ to play like a good or great quarterback. And he played below the levels of a bad quarterback. I think the lack of the running game, we already discussed that huge factor. The fact that they couldn't do draws, snap the ball, take two steps back, then hand it off when the pressure's coming from the outside and let Chris Carson run up the middle. They didn't really have that in their arsenal. They didn't have just of the pound it up the gut pound it behind the tackles type of offensive running game that we've seen from the Seahawks for so long. We saw it with Marshawn Lynch. We've seen it with Thomas Rawls since then, obviously Chris Carson for the last couple of years. Collins is that kind of runner, but he doesn't have the durability. He doesn't have the, the stamina. He hadn't been in the system long enough. And frankly, he's probably just not good enough to be that guy regularly. He can be your, you know, your break the glass backup option, which is exactly how the Seahawks used him in this game. They said, we need somebody who can run with some physicality. This is the best option we have. You know, we'll put him in an incubator for a couple of weeks and bring him out and see what he does. And considering the circumstances and considering what he was asked of, he did fine. But the Rams were ready. The Rams were the one team you don't want to play in a situation where you have to take away a part of your offensive element. The coaching staff is not creative to come up with different ways to attack an opposing defense. And Sean McVay, he knows that. He knows that's the case. And he said, all right. This is all they're capable of doing. This is all Coach Pete and the staff is going to try to do. Just stop them doing these few things. Then they did. It may seem like I'm oversimplifying things, but all of that, coupled with the fact that the Seahawks didn't have their starting center in Ethan Pojic, who's having a great season, and they had to start Kyle Fuller, who hasn't started in three years, lining up against Aaron Donald, the best defensive player on planet Earth. Not a great recipe for success. They figured this thing out pretty easily. The Rams did. And that's, you know, I, I mean, you, you, it's it's frustrating because on one hand, a lot of that isn't Russell Wilson's fault. But on the other hand, this team has been able to expect that from Russ. He can win despite a lot of those things that are holding him back. Despite a rather archaic coaching staff that is unwilling to make changes. They made some this year. We'll get to that but ultimately they haven't changed that much. Despite an offensive line that was already bad in pass protection and was missing one of their better players. Despite having no running backs who were supposed to start the season on the open day roster outside of DJ Dallas and Travis Homer, who hasn't looked nearly like the player that he was last season. So all of these things gave Russell Wilson a really hard assignment, but he did not rise up to it. And that's rare. That's uncharacteristic for Russ. 
is it fair to heap all of this expectation on him? Probably not. But at the end of the day, we do. We as fans do. Coaching staff does. Other players do. This is all on him. And that's the thing that I thought we saw a lot of is two different ways to criticize Russell Wilson, particularly after his horrendous interception. The first one he had where he had 40 yards of running room in front of him. It looked like he could have maybe not scored, but he would have gotten 15, 20 yards probably pretty easily. And instead he threw it off of his back foot towards, I believe, Will Disley, who was not anywhere close to open, very easy interception. I think when you look at that play, clearly Russ didn't see the defensive back who was starting to move that way. That's the that's the biggest mistake. He just didn't see the guy. That's bad. That's uncharacteristic of Russ. But a lot of people are trying to heap more, more on it than that. I saw some people saying that Russell Wilson was too confident. We've hit the point where Russ is too confident. He's been cooking for too long, and he thinks he's invincible. And then I saw people making the opposite point. Russ isn't confident anymore. He lost his confidence. I don't think it's either of those things with regarding this specific play. He screwed up. He didn't see somebody that he should have seen. Whether it had anything to do with his confidence, his lack of confidence, I don't really buy that. I don't think Russ's confidence has changed all that much. We have to remember that without saying this, trying to be negative or making fun of him, Russell Wilson is pretty much a robot. He has programmed himself. I'm using that word somewhat facetiously, but he has mental health coaches and people he works with to like train him to not let emotions get to him during a game. So I don't think Russell Wilson is thinking, I have to make a throw here. I have to make a throw here. I have to make a throw here. And then he pressures and he presses on himself and he makes a bad throw. I think he just made a bad read. I really think that's kind of all that it is. And that's part of the reason I don't think we need to be that worried about Russ going forward. He's not, maybe he's dealing with some injuries. I know some people said that. If he is, we'll know about that, but he didn't look like it. He didn't play very well, but I don't think he's got injuries that are making him make bad reads. You know, he wasn't limping. He wasn't holding his shoulder. He just, he just didn't play very well. I think that when the Seahawks start getting healthy, when Chris Carson's comebacks, hopefully against Arizona on Thursday night, that will be huge. That will force them to have to game plan around him. DK Metcalf absolutely torched the Cardinals last time they played. He did more than just chase down Buda Baker, which was incredible. He also had 12 catches for 161 yards and two touchdowns. You can bet the Cardinals are going to defend him a lot more like the Rams did. And Buda Baker is good, but he's not Jalen Ramsey. So the Seahawks will de facto get DK Metcalf back for this game. And if they play a really aggressive defense on DK, then they'll have Tyler Lockett. He'll be good to go. If Carson's back again, that's huge. So I'm not worried about Russell Wilson going forward. I don't think you should be worried about Russell Wilson going forward. I also think that, yes, this Cardinals game is going to be tough. And it's it's going to be hard to win. I don't think it's crazy to think the Seahawks are 6-4 and four after this Cardinals game. And that sucks. To start the season 6-1, and one, to look like you were going to go 13-3, and three, and then to all of a sudden be 6-4, and four, that's a pretty big bummer. But I also don't think it's crazy they win. They already beat them once. The seat, I mean, the Cardinals barely got by the Bills. Granted, they they did. They beat the Bills, and but they did it on a last-second play. They're going to be gassed, just like the Seahawks are. It's going to be a battle of wills, but if the Seahawks get some healthy guys back into the fold, that's going to help. And after the Cardinals, the Seahawks get the Eagles, the Giants, the Jets, and the Washington football team. That's probably four wins right there. Those are not good football teams. 
So if the Seahawks manage to pull off this win against the Cardinals, they rebound and beat Arizona here. And then they win those four games. They're 11 and three. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. It's still hard to imagine this team having a ton of success in the playoffs against good teams because of their deficiencies defensively, because of all the injuries they've sustained, because of how beat up this team is going to be when we get into January and the playoff season. But there's a good chance they're 11 and three or 10 and four. 10 and four, yeah, not great. That's borderline playoff territory at that point. And they'd have some tough games still on their schedule, including the Rams again. But I'm not worried about Russell Wilson. I don't think you should be worried about Russell Wilson. I think this is a team that stumbled against a Bills team that was better than they thought and got really outcoached against a Rams team that we all knew was good and now has to kind of fight from behind the sticks, something they've done a lot in the Pete Carroll era. Speaking of the Pete Carroll era, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this extension. I didn't really get to it in episode one because I focused more on the Bills' loss. And I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. I think we saw a lot of very rapid reaction during and after, immediately after the Rams game about Pete Carroll's extension. He didn't have a great game. We'll talk a little bit about the most egregious part of that game momentarily, but people advocating that he didn't deserve his extension because of this game is overreaction. Any, any reaction to a coach's contract about one game is an overreaction. However, Pete Carroll got an extension through 2025. That's a really long time for the oldest coach in the NFL. A guy who's been with the Seahawks for 11 years now, or nine years, either way. And he got the extension in the middle of the season after a hot start. I said that we shouldn't react and criticize this extension because of a bad game. But I kind of think I mean it in both directions. And I think Pete got an extension in part because they were six and one because they let Russ cook. That's that to me. And I don't know, I don't have insider information on how or why or when any of that stuff, it could have just been a financial situation. It could have been conversations with Jody Allen and the Institute and everybody who owns the team. And this has just happened to be when they finally put pen to paper. I don't know all of that, but we're looking at a team that, kind of finally started to adapt a little bit, not a ton, not as much as people think that they did. They started throwing the ball more. They let Russell Wilson play like he does in the fourth quarter in the early quarters a little bit more often. Does that merit an extension for Pete Carroll well into his seventies when he's already the oldest coach in the league? I don't know. I don't really think so. His extent or his contract ran through 2021. I think it was kind of fine to leave it at that. You know, maybe if if this team finishes well and wins a first round playoff game and plays in the NFC Championship and they're you know six and zero to start 2021, then yeah, sure, give him an extension then. But why now? Why commit to him through 2025 when this team realistically hasn't done a ton since 2014? Yeah, they make the playoffs every year except for 2017. Yeah, they looked pretty good at times last year. Yeah, they've made some good decisions in the draft. Yes, Russell Wilson is fantastic. Chris Carson's seventh-round pick, incredible. DK Metcalf's second-round pick, incredible. But I'm not really buying this change. And the thing that kills me, the thing that kills me is you could have Pete Carroll as your head coach if you allowed him, or if if he allowed coordinators 
on the offensive and defensive side to be more progressive, to be more analytical, to be younger, <laughs> to, be, to be very blunt about it, younger, more progressive, analytical thinking coordinators. And he let them, not only did they bring them in, but he let them make decisions, talk him into things. Right now, what we've seen from Pete Carroll the entire time that he has been the coach of the Seattle Seahawks is he brings in coordinators who will let him do what he wants to do. This is how Pete operates. When he's winning championships, nobody really minds. But now what we have is we have a coach who brought in an offensive coordinator in Brian Schottenheimer who wanted to run the same type of offense. Now they've adapted, and credit to Shoddy because the way that he adapted, the things that they did have been very creative. It's made him look like a good coach. And that's fantastic. But for the first couple of years, he just did whatever Pete Carroll wanted to do. You didn't see the offense change very much at all from what Daryl Bevel did. And then he brought in Ken Norton. Ken Norton, who really just strikes me from conversations I've had with him, from conversations I've had with Pete, from just watching them interact and obviously watching all of the games. He's kind of a yes man. He just He's implementing the defense that obviously won them championships when Norton was an assistant coach back with the Seahawks in 2012-2013. But he, they're not doing anything differently, and they don't have that personnel anymore. I mean, technically, they have Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright still, and now Bruce Irvin before he got hurt. So they sort of have that personnel still. But they're not the players that they were back then, and they don't have the secondary. Obviously, the Legion of Boom was one of the greatest secondaries in the history of the NFL. This group is not that. And what we have is we have a coach who's unwilling to make changes to his defense and will only really bring in coordinators who are going to allow him to continue to run the same thing that he wants to run. It's antiquated. It's outdated. And if they wanted to keep Pete Carroll because he's a great figurehead for the program, he's fantastic with the press, he's, he builds an incredible culture, and I think he's so good at that, one of the best coaches probably in the history of the sport at that, if you wanted to keep him for those reasons, but you bring in some young hotshot coordinators who can convince him to make adjustments where he gives relishes some control of his defense and offense, where they don't just run your four, three base defense forever. And these soft zones that get crushed because they don't have a pass rush. So quarterbacks have all day and also have open receivers to throw to all day long. That's what the Seahawks have done this entire season. And you don't, you know, things aren't changing. They drafted Cody Barton and Ben Burkirvan last year. They drafted Jordan Brooks in the first round this year. Those are four, three corner, or excuse me, four, three linebackers. They didn't use their first round pick on a defensive end or a pass rusher. There were there, they were available. Yatur Gross Matos from BYU, or excuse me, from Penn State was there. There were multiple others. He was a big one that was mocked to the mocked to the Seahawks for a long time. They didn't do that. This sort of means John Schneider's complicit here, too. Schneider has the ultimate play, power. He can make a decision to draft other players, but he didn't. Everybody in that office is committed to, <laughs> to constantly doing the 4-3 base defense, to doing a similar offensive set. Sure, they'll pass a little bit more, but it's not that different. The defense is not that different. The difference is they didn't draft Hall of Fame defensive backs. A guy like Earl Thomas in the first, Cam Chancellor in the fifth, Richard Sherman in the fifth. That's not going to happen again. All the credit in the world to John Schneider for doing that the first time, because that is incredible that that happened. But it's not going to happen again. Shaquille Griffin is good. 
He's not great. He's not better than any of those guys. He's good. Quentin Dunbar, when he's healthy and adjusted to this defense, will be good. Not better than those guys. Not even better than Shaq. Just good. Quandre Diggs looked good last year. Doesn't look as good this year. Not overly worried about him. But he's not either. He's not Camp Chancellor. He's not Earl Thomas. Jamal Adams. Now he's damn good. I like Jamal Adams a lot. Through five games, he's on pace for something like 18 sacks over a 16 game season because they're doing this blitzing stuff with him, which I'll give the coaching staff credit for that. That's something they haven't done a lot of in their history and they're doing it right now. And that's awesome, but it's a small change and it's not changing the fact that they still have a very, very outdated defense with a head coach who's refusing to change it with a defensive coordinator who's refusing to change it because he's just more or less a puppet for the head coach and a, a general manager is not willing to change it either. A general manager who drafts the players to fit into the defense that they're just diehard committed to. I mean, shoot, they drafted a guy like Brooks when they had Cody Barton, the dude they drafted the year before that in the third round to be that replacement, you know, to play that Sam linebacker spot because they knew Michael Kendricks wasn't going to be under contract after the year. Instead, what happened is they drafted Jordan Brooks. They kept Cody Barton as a backup third you know third round pick in 2019 who's now been a backup linebacker for two years and they re-signed michael kendricks they brought him back partly because of injuries but my god this team is not willing to make any of those changes and now now you give Pete carroll four more years and you say here you go like they're clearly not willing to to challenge him on this stuff why would that make him change if the leadership on the team is saying, hey, we're good with exactly how things are going for the next four years. His coordinators aren't telling him anything different because he, is, well, he hired them specifically not to do that. Why would there be any change here? You know what I mean? There's just no reason for him to change. There's no reason for, for anybody to change. So this is what it's going to be through 2025. I like Pete Carroll. I like him as a person. I think he's a good coach. I think he's... <laughs> I think he's a good coach in the sense that he manages players well. And I think that his in-game decision-making obviously leaves some to be desired. We haven't even talked about this yet. Midfield, fourth down, inches. The original broadcast in my head, watching it at home on TV, it looked to me like Russell Wilson crossed the plane with that football. And I thought, oh, I wonder if Pete will challenge it. And then I thought, eh, it's really never a good idea to challenge a spot especially on when you're going to be in fourth and inches, you just, should, should just go for it. Pete decided, well, I am going to challenge it. All right, fine. My first thought, and it was echoed by AJ McCord, who tweeted it at uh, coin for coin news. Uh, I want to give her credit because I read her tweet about it, but that, well, Pete's going to challenge this to give himself time to come up with a play to go for it on fourth down, which would have made a lot of sense. That's a pretty good plan. Instead, Pete challenged it, lost his timeout, didn't get it, because they almost never do. That's never, almost never a call that they make. And then they came out, lined up as if they were going to go for it, fourth and inches, tried to get the tried to get the Rams to come off sides, didn't work, took a delay of game and punted. What is going on? How How is that the decision? You burn a timeout that you don't get back. You don't, I mean, the Rams are, aren't, they're not going to fall for that. You know, they know what you're doing. And then you just give the football back to the other team. When you have the league leading offense, yes, Russ hadn't had a good game, but this is the best offense in the NFL. 
statistically and the worst defense. And Pete basically said, no, I trust my defense more than I trust my offense. The same mentality that he had in 2013 when he had a rookie quarterback, a good running back, and a Hall of Fame defense. That strategy worked then. No surprise that it worked then. It's not going to work now. It's not the personnel that he has, and that doesn't matter to him. It's just a round, is square peg in a round hole. Just going to keep trying to do it this way when it's not the way that they should be trying to get things done. And now we got a few more years of it. Love Pete Carroll. Love him as a person. Thank him for the the Super Bowl championship and the near second Super Bowl championship. But at the end of the day, this just is not the way to run this current team. And we're going to get four more years of it. And that's just kind of something that I think Seahawks fans are going to have to resign themselves to. It's going to be a little bit frustrating, but it's kind of just the way that things are going to work. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, I'll be joined by Brian Kalbrowski of Hoops Hype and USA Today's Rookie Wire to discuss the Blazers' NBA draft targets and what the scouts and general managers like about a few local college stars. Stay tuned. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, welcome back. I am joined now by Brian Kalbrowski of Hoops Hype and USA Today's Rookie Wire. Really excited to have Brian on. He is a local guy, and he is an NBA draft expert. He is sort of a local guy. He's kind of nodding a little bit. He has local ties. Why don't we put it that way? Local ties and is going to be here to discuss all things NBA draft, particularly with our local guys. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, local, local in the domestic sense. I mean, I do live, I do live in America, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, and I've been here for uh, several years now. So, a uh, few hour, few hours away. <laughs> but when I say local, I mean the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, no, I, I did, I did go to the University of Oregon. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar uh, with sports in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, definitely. Definitely love uh, following along uh, for what the you know the guys in Northwest are doing. Um, so, uh, in that sense, definitely have a ton of local ties. Well, Brian, thanks again for coming on. Like I said, I uh, I've been reading your draft content for a long time. I write at USC Trojans Wire, so I've seen your mock drafts on Anyeka Okongwu from USC for a long time, and gotten a chance to kind of write about them and read about. Killian Tilly as a Gonzaga graduate and many of the other guys. I kind of want to start with just a more overarching question. Uh, Obviously, this is an extremely weird NBA draft season. The draft typically happens in June, and the college basketball season typically ends in late March or early April. Instead, the college basketball season ended in mid-March without an NCAA tournament, which is where I know a ton of scouting and overall kind of reviewing of prospects happens. And then the draft still hasn't happened. It's going to happen in two days from now on November 18th. But with just this incredible amount of time between when these guys actually played competitive basketball, do you think that there's some level of maybe disconnect from general managers and front offices and the players? Do you think it's... I mean, obviously it's different, but do you think it's going to make the draft, I hate using the word accurate because drafts are inherently not super accurate, and I don't think that's a good way to judge a draft, but do you think we're going to see some more parity than we typically have in the past because of this? 
Well, uh, I actually think that this this draft might have more parity uh, for for other reasons. In mm-hmm. that, uh, I think it's actually really deep. I think mm-hmm. um, uh, outside of maybe the consensus top ten, mm-hmm. I think you know there's a lot of guys between um, you know mid to late lottery projections to mid to late second round uh, that I think you can kind of just go based on what you what you like in a prospect. Right. Um, if you're looking for a hyper athlete, you can find someone like Cassius Williams who will probably, or Cassius Stanley, my goodness, mm-hmm. Cassius Stanley, who will be available somewhere between anywhere between 15 and 45. Right. Um, you know, I think uh, if you're looking for somebody who, you know, has got more experience in the front court, good rim rolling uh, passer, um, you know, high defensive IQ, uh, you can get someone like Xavier Tillman, who again, I think will be somewhere between. 15 and, and 45. So I think it really comes down to just what the front offices uh, specifically want for their team. I think it's going to be a lot less of a, a best play, best player available in this sense, because I think um, it, it really is going to be a situation where um, a lot of these guys are pretty similar to each other mm-hmm. um, in terms of just their overall uh, ceiling and their overall floor. Uh, there are some guys that have a wider ceiling and a lower floor. Right. Um, but I think for the most part, um, you know, you gotta, you kind of are gonna find, you know, uh, what teams value, uh, what teams are looking for, um, and just what it is that they want to see from their draft prospects, and that's kind of how they're gonna be making their decisions. Uh, and I think that's really uh, the way that we're gonna be able to find the best case of, you know, who the best impact players are gonna be. I don't think the best players in this class. Um, are necessarily going to be the first three players selected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know, it would be very easy for me to imagine a scenario in which if someone, um, you know, picked outside of the top five, you know, who ends up being the best player. So uh, I don't know if there's a disconnect necessarily between the players and the front office, uh, but I do think, um, you know, front offices in terms of what it's going to look like in the draft night, I think, you know, they've had a lot of time to do their scouting and all of that. I mean, if anything, front offices may have over, maybe overthinking mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, they've, they've got a lot of intel on the guys. They've done their homework. They've asked around. Thankfully, they've had a chance to, to meet, you know, their prospects in person. Uh, for the most part, a lot of teams have had, um, you know, probably five to 10 guys, you know, come in for workouts. So, um, or they've at least come in down to visit them uh, in mm-hmm. their home cities, whatever it might be. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've, you know, most of these teams have interviewed probably a hundred, 150 um prospects uh through zoom so they they've got a pretty good idea through those conversations what that looks like and, and who you like and, and how they stand out and how they're able to sell themselves yeah i was wondering if there was going to be almost more like over overthinking things because i know that mock draft season and and like obviously your site and many other sites that do these kind of content i've consumed tons of them just because it's something that i really like to do and the spread on where some guys are going is astronomical and i think part of it is just more mock drafts, more people doing them because there there's more months to write them. But it does seem like there's a lot of a lack of consensus at I mean even at the top, but particularly when you get a little bit later. And I think that could make for a really fun draft night. But uh, it's one of those things too where I wonder now, in particular, that we know that the season is starting in five weeks. Uh, certainly for teams that are trying to contend, I think. Uh, you will get to Portland in a little bit, a team who is probably trying to contend but doesn't usually draft players to to be a contributor right away, so that'll be interesting with them. But for teams that want guys to contribute right away, like 
you, you have five weeks. I'm curious if you think that will impact like teams that might normally go after a guy who could play right away, if they might shy away from that because they're like, well, shoot, no rookie's going to be ready to play NBA basketball in a month, so maybe we'll just take more project guys. Do you think any of that's going to happen, or do you think teams pretty much have their boards already set and this just isn't going to be a big factor for them? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, I think at the end of the day, um, you're going to see guys who um, maybe, like you said, if the season starts in five weeks, won't be on the floor in five weeks. Mm-hmm. They won't, probably won't be cracking a rotation in five weeks. Um, you know, outside of the top three or four players, right, that are selected. Um, but um, I think that there are going to be guys who are selected who are going to expect to be playing a role, hopefully yep. by, by the time the playoffs come around. Um, you know, I think that, uh, for example, one of the things that's appealing um, about a prospect like Anika Kongu, if you, you know, mm-hmm. cover USC for Trojan right. wires that, you know, he, he's so solid defensively that he won't be able to be played off the floor um, in the playoffs because of his defensive intensity, because of his right. motor, because of his energy, because of those sorts of things. And I think um, when you when you look at those sort of uh, elements in a player, I think that, you know, someone like Onyeka is probably going to get minutes, you know, fairly early. Right. Um, you know, I think there are some other guys who uh, who I love in this class who I don't think are necessarily going to get playing time right away. Uh, Tyrell Terry out of Stanford's got, you know, some more work to do. You know, he's got some more work to do on his body, but I still think he's a first-round pick, uh, likely selected somewhere in the teams. Um, ultimately, I think that, um, you know, a guy that, you know, like Portland's looking at, no secret, is Jay Scrub out of um, yeah. uh, Community College. And, you know, he's not going to go from junior college to an NBA rotation next season. Right. Um, but you know, I think that you know Portland likes their development system. Uh, they like what they've done uh, to get um, you know other players who have been a little un- little bit more un- unheralded, underheralded at least, mm-hmm. um, into uh, you know rotations and into positions where they're actually making an impact. So uh, I think that you know teams are just going to double down on, on on their draft philosophy as always. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are going to be some teams that I'm going to be interested to see how they do it because. You know, we've got a new front office in Sacramento, for example. Right. You know, we don't really know how Monty McNair's system is going to work. Um, we know how, you know, um, Vladi Divac's system worked and all of right. that, but we're not entirely sure what the Kings like yet. But, you know, we know that the Oklahoma City Thunder for a long time have really valued athleticism. Um, so, you know, guys like Jaden McDaniels, um, Tyler Bay, Cassius Stanley, um, even Kenyon Martin Jr., uh, who, are, who are all known for their athleticism are probably going to jump off the pages. Right. Natural Oklahoma City picks. I think you look at guys with wingspans, um, you know, like really, really plus wingspans. And, you know, then you want to kind of probably circle the Orlando Magic as teams that are going to, as a team that's going to consider them. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Philadelphia is probably going to draft shooting. Um, I think Dallas will also probably draft shooting. Um, I think, you know, all, all things considered, um, I don't think the fact that the season starting so soon is going to necessarily uh, change the outcome of the draft too much because I think, um, you know, regardless of where the player is in his development, uh, I think that, you know, they're going to be certain players that fit an archetype that are going to uh, end up on certain teams. Yeah. So pivoting to the Blazers, at least pivoting to the Blazers' first round pick, um, there's been a, a handful of names there. The Blazers under Neil O'Shea kind of, pivoting off of talking about general managers and their strategies. Uh, Olshay tends to, to not focus as much on positional need. 
The Blazers have rarely drafted guys who they expect to be immediate impact guys right away. But this is a roster that has some very gaping holes. There are clearly some areas they need some help. Damian Lillard is not getting younger. CJ McCollum is not getting younger. It seems to me like trying to find a wing who can contribute right away is the best course of action, but is not. it's rarely easy to do it, pick number 16. Uh, I'm curious if there are guys. I know Sadiq Bey is probably the most mentioned player for the Blazers at 16 because he's polished, because he can shoot from the outside. He's got a ton of athleticism. Can you speak a little bit on Bay as a fit for the Blazers? And then maybe if there are other guys that you could see in that 16 range, even if they're not wings, uh, we can expect Olshay to maybe be a little bit uh, off the cuff as he's done in the past. But I think Bay in particular is the guy that I kind of want to hear your thoughts on how he'd fit with that Blazers team. Yeah. So deep Bay is definitely one of my favorite prospects that I've had a chance to to talk to. Uh, he really impressed me. Um, I've, I've interviewed close to 40 players in this class so far. Um, mm-hmm one or two more total. So I guess we can kind of round it out to be yeah. 40. Um, and, and Sadiq Bey really, really stood out. Uh, he, he's very cerebral. He knows his role. I think, you know, in that sense, he's somebody who will fit in very well with uh, Dame and CJ. Cause I don't think he's going to demand the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's got uh, more playmaking than you'd expect. He, he uh, in terms of the way that he was able to actually run the pick and roll as the ball handler, um, you know, at six foot eight, that, that's pretty, pretty impressive. So you yep. can have secondary, uh, ball handler on the court uh, when Sadiq Bey is playing. Um, you know, he, sh- he shoots with a high clit. Um, he's somebody who I think is going to warrant consideration from a team selecting a- in front of Portland as well. Um, you know, I-, I know one team that's selecting in the lottery uh, showed me their big board, and or at least one scout did, and mm-hmm. he had him at number five overall. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that team is selecting in front of Portland. Yeah. Um, so, you know, who knows if they end up selecting him, but I mean, that is the kind of player that Sadiq Bey uh, is. Personally, I don't know if Sadiq Bey has uh, a star potential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that he's probably going to be, um, you know, at best, uh, in my opinion, someone who's pretty close to Chris Middleton, where it's like he's got um, a defined role and he just completely excels in it. And, you right. know, it's like he's a star in his role, and that's enough to maybe even make him uh, become an all star. Um, but I don't know if you're ever going to be building your team around Sadiq right. Bay, and that's sort of one of the reasons why I like him. Um, you know, with Portland, is they have the guys that they're building around already, and he's he's a really good complementary piece. Um, but it doesn't really seem to fit Portland's draft philosophy mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day. Um, I think that you know, if we're looking at wings who can shoot, there, there's a few others um, in that range who who will probably come to mind. Uh, Aaron Smith out of Vanderbilt um, is somebody who. Uh, obviously shot the ball really well, shooting over 50% from three uh, before his injury. Definitely some small sample size theater going on there, um, but still at least worth knowing. Um, you know, I really like Desmond Bain. Uh, I think he's he's somebody who, who could definitely play uh, a very important role uh, for a contending team as soon as next season. He was one of the guys who played, um, you know, all four years of college and you know, was productive and consistent during all four of those years. He was a, a great interview for me as well, and I think he's somebody that really is rising uh, during the interview process. So that's something that, um, you know, does does do something for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you want to see uh, guys like Desmond Bain who, who know their role and know how to talk about it. Um, I think he would do well in that locker room as well. Um, Robert Woodard, you know, drastically improved his three-point percentage um, year over year from his freshman year to his sophomore year. 
I think, you know, that shows hard work that goes into it to eventually be getting to the clip that he uh, did reach. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled uh, about Robert Woodard. His, his athleticism is actually really, really solid. He's got a really big, um, you know, really big frame, really athletic guy. Uh, he's somebody who I think could be a potential sleeper in that area, but um, none of those guys really necessarily fit that Portland, uh, that Portland philosophy as much. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think, I think that uh, the guy who seems to be trending um, to Portland today, at least, you know, at least in terms of all the mock drafts that that I saw, was uh, Alexej uh, Pogoshevi, um, mm-hmm. not, not uh, out of uh, out of Serbia. Yeah. Um, he's somebody who. Uh, probably will be a draft and stash option, um, but you know I think that he's somebody who uh, can play a really fantastic role uh, in the NBA at some point if everything comes together. Uh, he's the kind of player who can be the best player in the NBA draft when it's all said and done. Um, I wouldn't bet on that because I think that there's a lot of hurdles he needs to come through. You know he needs to he needs to put on a lot of size, put on a lot of bulk. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very 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 skinny, um, but. You know, he's got the right blend of playmaking, the right blend of shooting, uh, and the right size, you know, at seven foot, um, you know, to make a difference. So uh, I think he's somebody who's a real home run swing. Um, I could see him being somebody that, you know, teams trade up for. And, you know, I think that at the end of the day, I wouldn't be surprised if Portland trades back as well. Mm -hmm. I think that Portland's a team that um, maybe doesn't want to be drafting uh, this high. Maybe they want to build, you know, uh, their, their wing. Uh, in free agency, maybe they mm-hmm. think that you know they can they can build around the edges like that uh, with a Rodney Hood or something mm-hmm. like that, just kind of bringing him back into the fold. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of the day, um, I, I could see Portland moving back, uh, maybe getting an asset in the process and getting the guy that they no secret you know want in, mm-hmm. in Jay Scrub. Uh, I don't think they need to use a 16 pick to get him though. So I want to talk about Jay Scrub more, but I also. I remember I forgot to put this in my notes, but I listened to you on the Lockdown Blazers podcast uh, Mm -hmm. a week ago or whenever it came out. uh, And you talked about your interview with Sadiq Bey. Right. Specifically, the conversations you guys had. uh, Correct me if I'm wrong about like Greek philosophy and very ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. We spoke about Plato's allegory of the cave. I love that so much. I just wanted people to hear that because I think that's cool that you got to talk to not only talk to Sadiq Bey, but also talk about Greek philosophy, something that I imagine you did not have in your notes when you started talking to him. Actually, weirdly enough, I did. Oh, well, then there, there you go. Never yeah, mind. I was uh, I was given a tip that mm-hmm. um, if you get him started um, in talking about uh, Greek philosophy, he will run with it. That um, is which, amazing. Which was interesting because he, he was he was a little stiff at first and not uh-huh. not bad but he wasn't somebody yeah. who uh, the conversation was particularly like exuberant with right? right I mean there are some guys who are very uh, charismatic and charming and can turn it on right away uh, Sadiq was giving you know really good answers but nothing nothing that was jumping off the page and then right. when that came up his whole mentality changed and he he really did take the question and run with it and. I think he was really, really. He didn't have it in his notes that he was really, uh, <laughs> sure. talking about it, but he was really excited to to kind of uh, talk about the allegory of the cave, and he mm-hmm. broke it down for me, and he even uh, talked about the ways that it, you could you could apply it uh, to basketball and just his own uh, understanding of existentialism and philosophy, right? Where it's like you only really know what you know. That's sort of what mm-hmm. the allegory of the cave suggests, right? It's right. that you're you're looking at at the wall that you're chained to. Um, in a cave and you've never seen the sun so if you've never seen the sun 
um, you you don't know, but you don't right. know about the idea of lightness. And that was sort of his his uh, conversation with me. And he was like, you can't really compare yourself to anybody uh, because you want to um, make sure that you know you can only compare to the experiences that you've had and be the best version of yourself. And I think that from a basketball perspective, that was a really cool tie-in. Yeah. It's something I didn't necessarily expect uh, him to have such a good tie-in for, but something he definitely did. Uh, so that that was a, that was a great one, and uh, I think that uh, a lot of the um, all of the folks in Portland, you know, or wherever Sadiq gets yeah. drafted, uh, should should read it when it comes out, or yeah. when, when he gets drafted, wherever wherever he ends up. Come come to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show for takes on sports and also takes on Greek philosophy. Look at that. Um, so talk about Jay Scrub, uh, obviously a guy the Blazers have been uh, connected to uh, in part or almost exclusively because of your reporting on their connection there. That's where I saw it first anyway. Um, do you think that he is a guy who, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about him? And then do you think he's a guy that the Blazers will have to either move back for or move up from 46? Do you think he's there? Are more teams interested in him? Uh, he strikes me as like a, a very like right in line with what the Blazers do with their second round picks. You know, I, I know they've gone after a lot of like high major four year guys with those picks as well, like Jake Lehman and, and some of the other guys, but scrub fits the bill of that kind of development piece that they like to do. So I'm just curious what, I, I know he's not a guy we've seen a lot of, but what, what your takes are on him and, and where you think the Blazers might be able to get him. Yeah. He's a, you know, six foot five lefty combo guard, um, incredibly productive uh, score. Um, you know, he's somebody who, uh, you know, during his first year uh, in junior college, uh, I guess it would have been the year before this season mm -hmm. or last season, however we're defining it, um, he, I think, uh, shot somewhere around, um, yeah, he shot 46.4% from three-point range uh, in 2019. Um, and then, uh, you know, he also pulled down 8.6 rebounds uh, a game. Um, and then last year, he was the, the top junior college player in the country, uh, averaging 21.9 points per game, um, you know, winning the national championship for his junior college team, essentially uh, beating the teams that, um, you know, were considered to be the best junior college teams in the nation, kind of historically had been. Um, and his, his junior college wasn't exactly that. Um, Louisville commit, um, who could have been playing at Louisville, uh, there were strange and unusual circumstances surrounding um, the the recruitment and everything, but he, he was ready to go and, you know, almost went next season. Uh, he, he was considering, um, you know, not hiring an agent and going to college and playing again. I think, you know, without Corona, maybe he, maybe he would have, um, right. you know, you see that you see guys, I mean, Jimmy Butler obviously is one who, who went, right. to, um, went to junior college, went to a college, went to a, a bigger college and then, drafted um he, you know he's trying to be one of the few to go straight from junior college to the nba uh he's, he was uh, a stellar junior college player and i think that he um is somebody who is going to get some attention from from teams um portland has done extensive research on him they've probably been the team that's done the most research on him mm -hmm. um you know all things considered uh so you know i think that he's going to um he's going to probably uh, be a bit of a boomer bust prospect in terms of you know his ability to actually play against NBA level talent. So we haven't right. seen that yet, but I've, I've heard he's been really really impressive in workouts. Uh, he tested fairly well at the combine in terms of his standing reach and his body and his frame and everything like that. Um, you know, again, good positional size for a combo guard. He could play on the ball pretty well, um, but you know, he obviously good shooter as well uh, from 2018 2019 numbers. So 
Um, I think that, you know, efficiency will be a question for him and how he'll deal with a lower usage rate. Um, cause right. I think, you know, he played it, uh, when he played, you know, in junior college, the team often ran through him, but mm-hmm. you know, I think, uh, he, he probably played a little bit less on the ball than you'd than you'd fully imagine. I think there were there were times where they didn't give him the possession. He was a little bit too passive, even where it was like, "Dude, you're the best player on the floor. <laughs> right? You could just take over." Um, but you know, combo guard, left-handed. You know, a lot of things you uh, you don't see very often uh, that he has the skill set for. Um, so uh, I, I like his game. I, I've got a friend who um, you know works in the basketball space who was watching his live games on Facebook, live streams on Facebook every single game and, you know, sending me notes and stuff on him. Um, you know, he, he, he works in uh, basketball and capacity where um, Jay Scrub really crossed his radar as somebody that, that was like, he's about, he's not your, he's not just a junior college player. He's not mm-hmm. just like the best junior college player. He's like, you know, this is somebody who's got uh, an NBA future. So, um, you know, that he was on my radar all year. Um, I, I didn't really buy into the hype as much because I was—I didn't really understand why we, why we were talking about this junior right. college player uh, so often. But um, you know, I think uh, I think at the end of the day, it's—he's um, a real player. You know, he's a real player, and I think he's going to make uh, you know ideally somebody uh, pretty happy. Um, you know, as he continues to um, get better and continues to uh, make his mark uh, into the NBA. So. First of all, it sounds like James Harden, 6'5", left-handed combo guard who can score. Right. So clearly that's their Blazers are getting James Harden in the second round. So that's perfect, right? There's a win-win for you there. Um, I, I, I know that second-round picks, you don't often hear a lot of like kind of rumors about teams connected to guys who are certainly going to go in the second round. Uh, and I know we have a handful of, of second-round type players that we're going to discuss a little bit later for with some of the local guys, but are there other guys who maybe fit that kind of mold of developmental guard prospects who you think might be available in the second round or other guys that Portland has, has been connected to with that pick or or players that just kind of make sense for what the Blazers tend to do with that spot? Yeah. If we're, if we're talking about, um, you know, guys who are maybe a little bit under the radar, Mm-hmm. Um, who who we don't know as much about um, that I think might capture Portland's interest. Uh, I I would say Josh Hall out of Moravian Prep um, is probably the closest one uh, in terms of similarity uh, to Jay uh, in that in that mold. Uh, he was a NC State commit um, who uh, decided to reclassify and um, you know become a, uh, in the in the 2020 NBA draft class. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he only scored 14 points a game on the AAU squad, uh, that he played for team loaded NC, um, mm-hmm. the Adidas gauntlet in 2019. Um, but he, he was 40% from three point range, um, during those games. Um, and he has a six foot 11 wingspan. Um, so, <laughs> wow. you know, playing, um, playing probably a six foot nine, six foot nine or so frame, mm-hmm. uh, with a six foot 11 wingspan. He's got, um, you know, that good mix of size, um, and shooting ability. Uh, so he, he's somebody that I think uh, is going to to garner some interest. Uh, and then KJ Martin uh, is probably another one out of IMG, mm-hmm. um, I guess, which is I think the same school that Anthony Simons went to. Yeah, it is. Um, so he, he tested pretty well at the combine, uh, recording a three uh, three quarter sprint and Max Vert that were both well above average for his position. Um, he, he did a lot better at the shooting drills than many expected. 
Um, you know, he shot 71% in the three-point endurance drill, uh, which is something that I think teams were a little concerned about because we haven't really seen him shoot at the elite level, mm-hmm. um, you know, so far because, you know, he, he played at uh, Sierra Canyon in, in high school alongside Kasha Stanley and, um, you know, some of those guys and, uh, you know, didn't go to college. So um, right. I think that, you know, taking that gap year, it's like, okay, how is his shooting for real? And it seems like that's something that he improved on. But, he, you know, he's an athletic guy at 19 years old. And obviously his father, uh, Kenyon Martin, uh, right. had a lot of success in the NBA for, for many years. So I think that uh, KJ Martin's probably somebody that, you know, should be on should be on your radar at least as a potential second round flyer as well. Well, yeah. So the Blazers going after a guard like that totally makes a lot of sense for what they've they've been doing. They have this development train with obviously we talked about Layman and the, Pat Connaughton and so many other guys. Gary Trent Jr. was on it. Anthony Simon seems to be on it. So it's just kind of fun to to see some of the names that we think could hopefully kind of pop in a year or two for the Blazers after they kind of incubate them for those couple of seasons with that second round pick. All right. So we're going to take a quick break once again. And then when we come back, Brian and I are going to discuss all of your favorite local draft hopefuls. They got a couple guys from UW, Peyton Pritchard from the university of Oregon, Killian Tilly, and a handful of other guys. So Brian and I will be right back after these messages. It's the worldwide sports radio network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, welcome back. Thanks again to Brian Kalbroski for being here. You guys can give him a follow on Twitter at Brian Kalbroski. Also follow Hoops Hype and the Rookie Wire for outstanding overall NBA content and particularly a lot of NBA draft content. Brian, I want to discuss with you now that we've talked about the Blazers and their potential draft plans. I want to talk about some of the other local guys, some Pac-12 guys, one WCC guy, one of my favorites. Many of you may know that my dog is named Tilly, and that is after Killian Tilly, obviously from the Gonzaga Bulldogs. So we can start with the two University of Washington forwards. I remember reading a lot of mock drafts like early in the year, like back March, April, shortly after the season ended, that had these two guys like back-to-back or really close to each other. It seems they've kind of spread apart since the season ended. Uh, on your recent big board rankings over at uh, Rookie Wire, you had Isaiah Stewart 18th. Can you tell me what you like about him? Yeah, Isaiah Stewart's somebody I want to bet on. Um, yeah. I, I was pretty low on him uh, after the season because uh, things didn't go as planned yeah. um, for for the Huskies. You know, they finished last in the Pac-12, and mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for, I looked at I looked at his numbers and. I saw a lot of post-up possessions. I saw a lot of possessions where he was relying on his size, which um, will not be as much of a factor uh, in the NBA. He won't be bigger than the guys he's playing against. Spoke to him, um, just realized I was I was wrong. I was dead wrong about him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was somebody who I think really proved to me uh, that he has the intensity. Um, he, he's going to be like a Draymond Green type where he – uh, is going to be able to recite everyone's name that's picked in front of him, uh, <laughs> and he's going to be able to make them all uh, look really bad afterwards, right? Um, I think that he's somebody who uh, I think realistically um, has just been. Uh, the more I think about it, like the more I really get like truly excited about his game. I think yeah. that he uh, he's somebody who's who's not going to back down. He's somebody who's going to be. Uh, very intense. He's going to be um, a worker, and I think you you see a lot of 
uh, great things in his body, you know, massive wingspan, really good uh, motor, really good um, work ethic. Uh, I think he's a better shooter than we saw at Washington. I think he shot the ball more often uh, in AU and that just wasn't really using that system. Uh, the 2-3 zone for defense didn't really do him favors. I think he would have done better uh, in a man defense where he could have taken his guy and locked him down. Uh, I think he's somebody who, uh, if there were a summer league, would be one of my favorites to win summer league MVP because he's mm-hmm. he's just pissed off. He's really, <laughs> really angry. He, he's really upset that he's fallen on big boards and mock drafts. He's definitely looking at them, uh, definitely taking notes to who's got him above and who's got him below. And I think that he... Um, can't wait to prove people wrong uh so uh, i really 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 like isaiah stewart um i think he's somebody who's uh often as intensity alone gonna play uh several years in the nba i'm reading the quote that he uh, that you put in your article at rookie wire that he told you and yeah it it, it reads intensely like i can feel how he's feeling just reading some of the things he said i'll just read a quick excerpt he said you talk about guys that are sleepers in this draft, and I'm the biggest sleeper. I'm the guy that slept on the most. I'm a guy who has always been showing up, taking care of business from day one. Yeah, he. I kind of like the Draymond Green comparison just in the sense of being that, like, feeling it, being that emotional about it, and being ready to really come out and prove people wrong. And, uh, yeah, if, if that shooting shows up, yeah, watch out. He could be – you talked about the best player in this draft not going to be in the first three picks. I don't know that he's going to be the best – but I wouldn't be surprised if he outperforms wherever he gets drafted. That's for sure. Uh, Jade McDaniels, next guy up. Uh, you have him at 54 on your big board. A pretty big fall for him. Obviously, you know, we talked about UW's disappointing season. His this season was even more disappointing than just UW's in general. Uh, can you talk about just kind of what you, what you see with him? He he's probably the player I'm, I'm lowest on uh, compared to consensus. Um, I, I have an article coming out tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, on hoops hype that explains, um, who I believe the, the biggest, uh, bust, not the biggest bust, the biggest boom or bust type prospects sure. are in this class. And, and Jaden McDaniels, uh, is that guy for me. Um, I think he is, uh, He's somebody who, in one-on-zero workouts, this is you know something I've heard directly from an NBA scout. Uh, you would think he's the next Kevin Durant. Um, yeah. he's somebody who um, averaged 18 points and nine rebounds per game on the AAU uh, circuit for his Nike UYBL team. Um, you know he, he's comfortable utilizing his on-ball sk- on-ball skills, and you know at six foot nine, he's definitely got the body and the frame of a player is going to be uh, successful in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you trust your front office, you trust your development program uh, and you're like, I can, I can make this work with him. Um, then you've got, you've got something there uh, with Jaden McDaniels. Um, he's, he's not the kind of player I would draft. Uh, if I had a yeah. big board, that was just guys that I would even consider. So it's like, obviously I think Jaden McDaniels should be on a consensus big board, but right. you know, teams, teams have their own version of a big board where it's like, if you're not going to draft him, he's not even going to be on your big board. If I was one of those general managers, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have Jaden McDaniels on my big board um, at all. He, he's not somebody that I would be interested in drafting because um, he committed uh, 4.3 fouls per 40 minutes, which was um, 20 among all high major freshmen. Uh, his turnover rate um, was fifth worst among all high major players, six foot nine or taller. Um, 
four players on his own team were better shooting from downtown than he was. Um, his assist to uh, turnover ratio was was really really bad. Um, you know, even even on the uh, AAU circuit, um, that was a problem. Assist to turnover ratio was low, and you know, even on the AAU circuit, he shot. 28.2% from uh, three-point range. That's uh, not the makings of the next Kevin Durant. You no. know, Durant can shoot. Um, I think he has – there are questions with him about his maturity. Um, I think for me, uh, I'm looking for the guys who are willing to, to get better, willing to put in the work. Um, I think that – he came into high school. He came into college knowing he was a top high school recruit, and mm-hmm. I think that a lot of guys kind of stick with that. Um, yeah. And uh, when there are questions about someone's character and their desire to get better, um, that's just something that I'm a little more concerned about. I'm looking for the guy who's who's going to be uh, more willing to keep improving, more willing to uh, keep growing, keep grinding, um, and you know. There's a, there's a lot of research that I've done in this class, and there's a lot of guys who I've heard uh, do fit that bill, and he's he's simply not simply not one of them. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you're talking about a, a really highly rated recruit who put up numbers in his one college season, and like when you do a very surface area look and you don't do any digging, you're like, okay, top top recruit. You know, the program didn't do well, but he averaged big numbers. So what's the problem? But if, if that's his attitude is, is I did fine. Well, I don't need to fix anything. That's going to be problematic. And you kind of look at a guy who, whose skill sets could match today's NBA, but they're not like a lot of what he does. Isn't necessarily right for today's NBA. And if he doesn't make those adjustments, it's yeah, it's hard for me to imagine him being overly successful. in the NBA. He, Yeah. He actually, he actually kind of reminds me of a little bit, a little bit of a Nasir little, uh-huh. um, I think that that's somebody that probably comes to mind sure. uh, for me in terms of just, you know, high, high recruit, uh, mm-hmm. fell a little bit, um, probably still late first round for Jaden McDaniels. I think yeah. I'm a lot lower on him than where sure. he'll actually get drafted. Uh, but, you know, I think Nasir, Nasir slipped and I could see uh, McDaniels probably having a similar fate. Yeah. And, All you right. know, I don't know if it's going to be quite as bad as Bull Bull last year, but I All think right. that he just, like, for full disclosure, he probably would be the candidate for me, mm-hmm. um, most likely to have a Bull Bull-type fall in this class. Well, that's a good segue with Bull Bull to, to talk about our next player, Peyton Pritchard, a guy that I got a chance to write about uh, for Fansided's Busting Brackets, doing a bit of a draft profile, and I know you wrote about him, and I think that your article about him released today, if I'm not mistaken, or that's when I saw it. Obviously, you're an Oregon guy. You got four years of seeing Peyton Pritchard be a consummate pro-type guy, a winner, very talented point guard, obviously. Uh, A guy that I think a lot of times four-year point guards don't tend to get a lot of love in the NBA draft. There are counterexamples, obviously, but uh, you know, I think that sometimes these guys tend to not get a lot of love. And I'm curious just what your thoughts are having assumingly watched quite a bit of him and then recently gotten a chance to, to do an article on him as well. Yeah. I've, uh, I've followed Peyton Pritchard since he was in high school. Uh, he's somebody who's been on my radar for as long as I can remember. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in his uh, in his work ethic. That's kind of the one thing where uh, I called a lot of people, um, a lot of people that have known Peyton for a while. I called his AAU coach. I called mm-hmm. I called the director of men's basketball operations for Oregon. Um, 
when I was in locker rooms this year, even, you know, I would talk to Jordan Bell and Tyler Dorsey and Dylan Brooks um, sure. and get their feedback. Uh, Chris Boucher, mm-hmm. um, get their feedback a little bit on what they think about uh, Peyton Pritchard and what he could do in the NBA. Um, I, I did a lot of research on, on, on him and I think, you know, what I can ultimately come conclude with is that he, uh, he's going to, he's going to be one of those guys who's going to want to keep getting better. Um, yep. You know, I think that people uh, will 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 uh, bemoan the fact that on draft night people are going to call him a winner. Um, yep. <laughs> Peyton Pritchard went to Westland High School, who yep. had never won a state title before he was there. They won state titles all four years he was there, <laughs> yeah. and then when he graduated, they never won again. Yeah, haven't won since rather. Um, you know, and you know his first year at Oregon, they went to the Final Four. Um, his junior year, uh, I guess, which was not this season, but last season, mm-hmm. uh, Oregon's team had no business making the tournament, and they ended up almost yeah. making the Sweet 16 uh, thanks to his stellar play down the stretch. Um, you know, he was he was a consummate professional, uh, worked hard, and you know, I think he's just going to be one of those guys who who finds a way to make it work and stick around in the NBA for a long time. Um, you know, I'm not sure if he'll, uh, you know, ever crack a starting lineup um, mm-hmm. consistently. Uh, some people. Some people think that that's uh, very possible, yeah. um, but uh, I, regardless of what his ceiling looks like, I think his floor is pretty high. I think he can be a guy who sticks around for a while just based on his um, I'm not leaving the gym mentality. Yeah, I, he strikes me as a guy whose ceiling and floor don't seem that far apart. Like he probably doesn't have the potential to be like a star necessarily, but his floor is very quality backup point guard and his ceiling might not be a lot higher than that, but there's nothing wrong with that, especially if he's available in the second round. Uh, real quick on the draft, yeah. uh, the the Blazers just traded for Robert Covington um, and they've traded their 2020 first round pick to do such. Wow. Yeah. So. Okay. The Sadiq Bay conversation is over. And, so, did uh, they get another first back, like a later first, or? Um, no, they gave up reaction two. for y'all folks. Yeah, they gave up two first rounds to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. So, it was Trevor Ariza and two first rounders. Yeah, I think I'd seen some conversation about that a trade similar to that. Obviously, Ariza and picks for a higher level wing. So that's huge. I could talk for a really long time about Covington and his fit with the Blazers. Uh, I'll probably do more research before I do that, but that's a huge, huge pickup for them. Wow. Yeah. And I think, you know, it does change their draft philosophy as well. Like I, like I said earlier, I could see them not going for Sadiq Bay and going for someone who's instead more of immediate, more of a plug and play guy. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's for three agency or otherwise, Rocco yeah. is an exa- exact example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rocco is somebody who, um, fits right away with the timeline of Dame and CJ yeah. uh, more so than even someone like Sadiq Bay does obviously. Um, so you can definitely scrap the conversations of uh, <laughs> Sadiq Bay's fit to Portland. Cause that's not happening anymore. We still fun, had fun talking about his, uh, his allegory of the cave conversation at least. So that's good. Yeah, he'll still be in the NBA. So it's still a yeah. conversation. Yeah, and now I think that they're probably targeting Scrub pretty aggressively with that second round pick and, and adding him to the mix, especially since they have a little bit more help on the wing. Yeah. Whew. All right. We'll pivot off of that, pivot to my favorite player in the draft. And yes, I am biased, but that would be Killian Tilly. Tilly, obviously, a guy who's four year guy at Gonzaga, dealt with a ton of injuries. 
Uh, likely, and I'll get your opinion on this, but in my mind, pretty clear first round talent. If you ignore the injuries, uh, I think, you know, six ten guys with his athleticism and three point shooting and just overall basketball IQ are extremely rare and fit really well in the modern NBA. But, you know, big Ben with, with serious injury problems, he's had ankle stuff. He's had knee stuff. Like I can understand why there would be some hesitancy there. Uh, just what are your thoughts on him? Drew Holiday was just traded to Milwaukee. Oh my goodness. What a yeah. day. What a day. I guess I knew Lots. reporting this when the trade deadline was or when the trading was open was going to be a Lots thing. Of stuff but... happening. I will not be sleeping tonight, it sounds like. No. Um, <laughs> I uh I love Tilly. I love Killian yeah. Tilly. I'm glad you named your dog after him. <laughs> um, he, he was really charming. Mm-hmm. Um he uh he is he is a first round talent. Um, he's somebody who I think has uh, become underrated. I think people might be taking a little bit too much stock in his injuries. He's mm-hmm. healthy now, right? Uh, you know, someone who's gotten hurt doesn't necessarily mean he's injury prone. Um, right. Although he has gotten hurt several times, so um, I uh, I really really like um, the idea of Kelly and Tilly uh, for our team like Dallas. Uh, yeah. That's where I had in my most recent mock. Um, because I think he can, um, on, on a floor with, with Luca, um, really, really spread it. And I think Milwaukee would be another great fit too, where, you know, you want, you've got an interior finisher with, with, uh, with Giannis, mm-hmm. put him on the, put him on the perimeter and, you know, you can have like a role similar to, um, W's Bertans. I think that's yeah. probably the guy that comes to mind the most for me, but he's got, Probably a little bit more of an advanced playmaking attitude than, than someone like Breton's. Uh He's a little bit more multidimensional. Um, Kelly Chile is a very versatile player. Uh, I I really like um, what he can do at the next level. I think that he's somebody who um, is going to be productive. Um, so I'm uh, I'm excited to see I'm excited to see what ends up happening um, with with Kelly and Tilly because I do think he's become a little bit underrated and. Uh, and communities, I think that you know guys that his defense is not his defense is not there yet. Um, yeah. But if you're looking at guys that can spread the floor in the front court. He's probably the first one you should think of. Bertans was the comparison that I made when I wrote about Killian Tilly as well. So I'm glad that that is somewhat shared. I do think he's a bit more of a playmaker, uh, but yeah, I think that he's just so advanced and so capable of doing so many things on the basketball. Uh, the person who first gave me that comparison is uh, Rem Bakemas. Oh, nice! Um, figure, <laughs> if Shout out to them. figure if you're a, a Gonzaga guy yourself, that would mean something more to you than it would to most people. Yes, that is that. It's, I mean, it's a good comparison. It really does track, and obviously, you know, coming up with the Spurs it certainly helps Bertans. But I like the Milwaukee pick for him too. Obviously, with uh, Isiova there, a kind of a guy who's a, a bit similar, a bit more one dimensional, I think as well. But uh, yeah, that seems like a seems like a really solid fit. I think Tilly's the kind of guy who I think he fits on just about every NBA team because teams yeah. need guys like this, you know. Yeah, like tell me he wouldn't be good for the Blazers, you know, like as a as a a, a perimeter four that they something they don't have on the roster right now, you know. Yeah, Lake, Lakers would would certainly benefit yeah. from him as well. Yeah, I think the Blazers might hesitate taking a big man with injury issues because of their uh, horrid past in that in that area, but he would he would be a fit certainly. Brian, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the Blazers have certainly drafted Gonzaga Bigs before. Yes, exactly. His teammates with uh, Zach Collins for their one season, for Zach's one season. So 
Brian, thank you so much. I know you just probably found out you have a whole lot of work <laughs> that you need to do. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to let you go. I'm going to try to do a little bit of some Robert Covington talk, but thank you so much yeah, for pleasure. coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, again, if you're out there listening, you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Kalbroski. You can check out Rookie Wire and Hoops Hype. His stuff is there. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon, okay? Yeah, thanks for your time. Yep. All right. So the Blazers have a new wing, it sounds like. Robert Covington coming over. Uh, I'm trying to find a little bit more information about it. I got a couple questions from fans uh, that are from listeners. I don't know if I want to call you fans yet. That sounds a bit uh, presumptuous. But um, I definitely want to answer some of those questions, but I also really want to talk a little bit about Robert Covington. So, yeah, so there's always been this kind of – the Blazers need a wing very desperately. I liked Trevor Ariza. He had a good half of a season with the Blazers last year, but he's not hes not the full-time answer. He's 34 years old, and they played him a lot because they needed to, because Rodney Hood was hurt, because Mario Hazonia is not very good at basketball. They just – they didn't have anybody to play that spot. And I think that there was always kind of the expectation that if they go into next year with Rodney Hood and Trevor Ariza as basically the only options at the wing, the results probably would be better than the eighth seed. But I have a hard time imagining them doing any better than fifth, sixth seed. And with Damian Lillard at the age that he is right now and CJ McCollum playing like he is and Yusuf Nurkic healthy and looking like a guy who could be in for a monster year next year, you need to take advantage of that. You know, I love Carmelo Anthony, and I hope they still bring him back, even with this move. I really do. But at the end of the day, you need, like, young, in-their-prime wings. Robert Covington is that. Right now, I'm looking at his basketball reference page. Robert Covington is listed as a center, power forward, and small forward. That is weird. It's weird that he's listed that way. But he's 6'7", shade over 200 pounds. I mean, we're, this guy is a wing. He is a three in my mind. I think you can argue that he's a small ball four, but he's a really, really small ball four. And I'm just not sure that that's really the role for him. I think he's pretty clear cut three. I think this potentially gives them the opportunity to have Rodney Hood come off the bench, which may, may not be what Rodney Hood wants necessarily, but I think it's a good role for him. It gives them two bona fide wings. Robert Covington is also a good outside shooter. He has attempted over six and a half threes per game for his career. This is what he does. The dude is a big three-point shooter. You know, he's never quite crossed 40%. He's not elite necessarily, but he is very capable from beyond the arc. This is what you want. Damian Lillard thrives by being a guy with the ball in his hands a lot. Dame doesn't Dame doesn't play off the ball. This is why it's always been strange to me when the Blazers have targeted true backup point guards. I don't really get it. I don't understand. Like you need somebody else who can handle the ball, but they've proven capable of having CJ McCollum do that. He did it last year when Dame was out and was outstanding. Averaged like 30 and six assists. It was great. So having a, a true backup point guard doesn't really make a lot of sense. Damian Lillard needs the basketball in his hands. Robert Covington doesn't. And that's great because CJ McCollum also needs the ball a lot. They have two really ball centric guards and it's been part of the reason they haven't quite been able to get over that hump. Love both those guys think that they're a backcourt that is capable of getting to the Western conference finals, which they've obviously done potentially even capable of getting beyond that hump and into the finals and maybe even winning it all. I do think that those two guys can do that. Damian Lillard is that good, but the whole rest of your roster needs to be geared specifically towards that. Robert Covington is 
He's not a guy who needs the ball. He's not a guy who needs to create his own shots. Even Carmelo Anthony, who again, loved the mellow experiment. I've, I've talked about this a handful of times, not on here, but you'll hear me say it more. I thought it was one of the most fun things that happened in the year 2020. Carmelo Anthony becoming a blazer and seeming to embrace his role you know, do what he needed to do. He wasn't a ball hog. He didn't sulk. He wasn't unhappy. He loved it here. That was fantastic. I hope he's back. I really do. But he kind of needs the ball in his hands too. (laughs) You really need to build a roster of guys who can thrive moving around without the basketball, spot up shooters. And Covington is really what this team needed. Ariza fit too. But again, Ariza was 34, was not a guy they could rely on for 34, 35 minutes per night. Covington's 29. He's played big minutes throughout his career. He averaged 31 minutes last year, 34 the year before that. He's been over 30 every year since he was 25. This is a dude who can play. He's He's got good defensive numbers, kind of fits the bill of a 3 and D wing. Pretty much what, exactly what the Blazers needed. I mean, this, this was a name that was thrown around a lot. If you listen to others Blazers podcasts, I shouted out Lockdown Blazers earlier. I'll shout him out again. There you go, Mike Richmond, host of Lockdown Blazers. You get two shout outs. But the, this is the name that came up quite a few times and a name that was con- believed to be available that fit what the Blazers need. And we knew it would cost some draft capital. Giving up two first sucks. That's a lot to give up for Robert Covington. But it's is really what the Blazers needed. This is a, a very aggressive win-now move, the kind of move that Neil Olshay hasn't made a ton of during the offseason. Neil Olshay is incredible at in-season trades. He's very, very good at that. Enos Cantor was an incredible in mid-season acquisition. Paid off really, really well. They've done it before with other guys. Drafting Olshay is questionable. I don't know that he's exceptional at it. He's had some hits, obviously. CJ McCollum's incredible. Damian Lillard's a you know, franchise icon. He's had some potential misses. Jury's still out on Zach Collins. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, and Anthony Simons has not looked like the guy yet. He's still in the incubator. We'll see what, what we kind of get out of him eventually. But he hasn't made very super aggressive win-now moves in off-season trades all that often. Here, here we have one. This is it. A guy who was all-defensive team in 2017-2018. guy who, like I said, 36% three-point shooter. A guy who can finish around the rim if they need him to. A decent rebounder. Average just under two steals per game for his career, just under a block per game. A little bit, does a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Should fit very well with what the Blazers need alongside Damon CJ. They're in it now. <laughs> this is it. That you could not signal more that you're trying to win in the year 2021 than trading first round draft picks, which you don't have a ton of already. They're not stocked up on first round picks. You give up a couple of them and you bring in a guy who's going to contribute right away. The Blazers now have five weeks to figure out how to fit Robert Covington onto this offense. I don't think it'll be that hard. I think he's pretty darn good, but they're going to have to figure that out. They're going to be ready to roll. I think you're looking at a starting lineup of Dame and CJ, Robert Covington, Yusuf Nurkic at the five. That four spot is yet to be determined. It's possible, I guess. I'm talking myself into potentially throwing Rodney Hood back into that starting lineup at the three. Maybe they do start Robert Covington as a small ball four. Again, he's capable of it. That might be your best five right there, obviously, depending on whether Carmelo Anthony comes back, although I think he probably comes back in a reserve role, obviously, depending on Zach Collins. Like I said, we'll talk about him momentarily. 
you know, and then you have Gary Trent Jr. coming off the bench, your sixth man, very talented sixth man. You know, maybe they try to, they got to find a backup center. I don't think Hassan Whiteside's coming back. So they still got a, a hole there. Uh, obviously, Collins could slide into that role if he's not starting at the four. So they still have some some work to do. They got a second round pick. Maybe it's Jay Scrub. You heard Brian talk about him. He seems like a guy who fits a lot of what the Blazers need just from a roster perspective and also what they covet with their second round picks. So I think there's a there's a potential fit there as well. But this is big time. Breaking it live. Episode two. Did not think that I would be reacting to live news at 845 on a Monday night on my second episode. But here we are. We're doing it. I can be prepared for anything as long as we don't have some late breaking Seahawks or Sounders or Kraken or anything else news in the next 15 minutes. Now I'm going to take another quick break. And then when I come back, I'm going to answer my question that I got from fans about Zach Collins, which is going to have to be, I got three minutes to do some research real quick and I'll get back to you right after this. It's the worldwide sports radio network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Well, welcome back, everybody. The Portland Trailblazers sent their 2020 first-round pick number 16 overall, along with a 2021 protected first-round pick and veteran forward Trevor Ariza to the Houston Rockets in exchange for Robert Covington. So I didn't even talk about this angle, but the Rockets are clearly, I think they're they're tearing it down a little bit here. You know, I haven't followed up all the news, but I know that James Harden was interested in potentially getting traded. There's been rumors about Russell Westbrook getting traded. They obviously have a new general manager. Daryl Morey is over with the Philadelphia 76ers. And now you have a team that immediately got rid of one of their most playable assets in Robert Covington. They acquired two, two first-round picks, one for this year, one for the future. And a guy in Trevor Ariza who they might waive. He was considered uh, highly tradable by the Blazers because he has a contract that could be waived and, and clear up some salary space. So the Rockets are one less team to worry about. I don't want to commit to that yet because if they if they tear down the studs but keep Harden and Westbrook and nothing else, they're still going to be good. Those, those two guys are very good. But if they start moving on from those pieces, I think you can safely assume that this is a Houston squad that's tearing it down and rebuilding for the future. So one less team the Blazers might have to worry about. But Covington coming in really changes the dynamic of this Blazers team. It gives them the much-needed 3 and D wing. I already kind of touched on that, but it's really, really topical. I got two questions for you. We'll see if I get to both of them. I'm going to start with this question, which is, what is the future for Zach Collins in Portland? What timing? What timing for us to get to discuss this conversation? The future for Zach Collins in Portland has always been has already been a topic of conversation among Blazers fans, among Zags fans, among just basketball fans in general, because the Blazers have kind of had a hard time figuring out what to do with him up to this point. You know, he was he was drafted as a center because he is a center. He played center in college. He played center in high school. He, he He's not really a power forward. But yet the Blazers decided, heading into the 2019-2020 season, that Zach Collins was not only transitioning to power forward, he was the starter. Zach Collins is the starting power forward alongside Yusuf Nurkic, Twin Towers. They were playing them both together. That was the plan. Now I love Zach Collins. Unashamedly, unabashed Gonzaga basketball fan. I think that if I were ranking my fandoms in terms of 
just the emotional connection that I have to teams. Gonzaga is way the heck up here. But second place is the Blazers. These are my two teams that matter the most to me. So Zach Collins being on the Blazers is something that I absolutely adore. Something that I love. I love seeing him in a Portland uniform. And I want him to be successful really badly. And I still think that he can be. But frankly, I don't think he can be successful as a power forward. I don't think that that's his game. First of all, he's a rim protector. That's something that he excels at. Maybe not excels in the NBA. He excelled at it in college, and I think he can be average to above average at it in the NBA. He's a big physical guy. He's not afraid to mix it up down low. He's got enough athleticism and just instinctive timing to block shots. Playing him at the four doesn't allow you to do that. Playing him alongside Yusuf Nurkic in general doesn't really allow you to do that. Neither of them are exceptionally switchable big men up front. And so when you play them together, you're really susceptible to high pick and rolls, which is what every team in the NBA is running. So that's a problem. Granted, they were susceptible to that when it was Nurk and Carmelo Anthony in the game at the same time, or Nurk and Anthony Tolliver, or Nurk and Mario Hazonia. The problem is the Blazers don't have any power forwards. This was the issue. This is why Robert Covington is such a high, important acquisition. I called him a small forward. I still think that's been his historic position. Blazers are probably eyeing him as a power forward. That's the most realistic option here with them continuing to keep Rodney Hood. Obviously, they could still bring back Carmelo Anthony if he's interested in a reduced role. It's unclear. But getting back to the primary topic, Zach Collins. Collins only played in a few games last year. We didn't get to see the Yusuf Nurkic-Zach Collins combination because the third game of the year in the third quarter, Zach Collins came down weird on a rebound and bumped into Luka Doncic and popped his shoulder out. A lot of people thought, oh, just pop it back in. He'll start playing again. Nope. <laughs> he missed the rest of the regular season up through March. He was slated to come back soon-ish before the pandemic hit, obviously, and Rudy Gobert's situation happened, and the season got shut down. At that point, both Zach Collins and Yusuf Nurkic, who was still recovering from his horrific leg injury, got a lot longer to rehab. They did not have to rush back onto the basketball court. So then we got them back. We got them back for the eight games in the bubble. The Blazers obviously did well in those contests. Zach was okay for the few games that he played, but then he got hurt again. And then we didn't get him in LA. And then he had surgery and it was just really hush hush and kind of muffled up to, to still to this day, the Blazers have not officially announced, posted anything on social media, said anything about Zach Collins had successful surgery. He's eyeing this kind of return. So, and so, and so things that teams generally do. I'm not reading too much into that. I don't think it means that they secretly dislike Zach Collins or that they're like trying to cut him or trade him or anything weird or, you know, suspicious like that. But it is like, it's something <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's strange that their season is starting in five weeks and we don't really know a whole lot about the status of a player that should in theory be somewhat important to this team. Obviously, now acquiring Robert Covington likely, not likely, certainly reduces his role. What, even if they view Covington exclusively as a three, it still reduces Zach Collins' role most likely. I think there's no way in my mind that we don't see lineups that include Covington and Rodney Hood and CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard. Those four guys probably all start most realistically. I need to do a little bit more digging on Robert Covington, which, as you all know, I have not had time to do, obviously. 
and how he's been utilized. I've seen a lot of highlights of him. I've watched games that he's played in, but I haven't really ever been watching them to specifically pay attention to Robert Covington and his role, something that I'm going to do now. But again, I, I have to imagine the Blazers love Rodney Hood. Neil Olshay loves Rodney Hood. I don't think that they're envisioning Covington taking a bunch of time away from Hood, which means that he's going to play four, a spot that they don't have anybody. So if that's where he plays, that pushes Zach Collins to the bench. It likely pushes Zach Collins into the backup five role, a role that is vacated by the free agency of Hassan Whiteside and the extreme unlikelihood, unlikeliness that he will be back. I think he's going to command a pretty big contract. Whiteside's always been a guy who puts up really big numbers. His, his statistics are really good and he gets big money because of that, but he's not exceptionally helpful. He's not a good defensive player despite a lot of blocks. He's not a good offensive player. He's not a fit as a backup center to Yusuf Nurkic, especially with Zach Collins already on the roster. It just doesn't make sense. So I think Zach Collins is your backup five. I think they'll still try to get him into that four role occasionally. I think there's less room for it now. There's zero room if they bring back Mello. I think that that's less likely now, which is unfortunate um, as a, somebody who likes Mello. It's not necessarily unfortunate for the Blazers roster. Robert Covington is better than Carmelo Anthony. It is an upgrade without a doubt, but it's, it was, you know, it's fun to see Mello in a Blazers uniform. And it's kind of sad that that era is likely over after just one season. But I think with, with Collins, they might try to force that big lineup more often just because they, they seem so committed to it. I have a hard time seeing them 100% completely scrap it. But at the end of the day, Zach Collins' best fit is as the backup five, the guy who plays when Yusuf Nurkic doesn't play. That's the best role for him right now on this roster. I said it right after the trade happened and we were live reacting to it. The Blazers are going for it now. They don't make this trade if they're not going for it right now. And I think that right now, Zach Collins is a backup five. In the future, maybe they think they can mold him into a starting four. Maybe they think they can mold him into a starting center. Maybe they think they can mold him into this great trade piece to get them another another spot. I don't know. But right now, the thing that he does the best for this Portland team is play basketball when Yusuf Nurkic is not playing basketball. Nurk missed a year and a half. Because of the pandemic, he was slated to come back right before the pandemic hit. So he missed a lot of time. He looked good. He played a lot more minutes than I thought. And then his season ended. And then five weeks later, not quite five weeks later, but five weeks from now, you're asking him to go out there and play 35 minutes a night starting in late December? I don't think so. I think Nurk is probably 26 minutes a night, 24 to 26 minutes per night, kind of gradually raises that number a little bit as the season goes on, as he continues to prove that he's healthy. Nook's very young. His body recovered well from his injury. He looked good in the bubble. He looked good in the playoff series. He didn't appear to be suffering from any ill effects, but why on earth would you risk it? You know, why would you play him 38 minutes in the, in the season opener? You know, just, it just doesn't make any sense. Nook's a guy that they probably need to baby a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit. And it's a lot easier to do that when you have a backup center that you have a lot of confidence in. And Neil Olshay has a lot of confidence in Zach Collins. He really likes Zach Collins. You traded up to get him. He has not entertained trades. I mean, he maybe he's entertained them, but he certainly, we haven't heard anything that indicates they were ever close to trading Zach Collins that I can hear about. At this point, I think that Zach's trade value is way, way lower 
than the way that the Blazers view him. The Blazers value him here, and Zach Collins' trade value is down here. Like teams are not going to offer anything that would entice the Blazers more than what they think they have in Zach Collins. I guess that's the best way to put it. And I agree. I think that's okay. Why would you trade a guy coming off of a season that he missed coming off a year where you tried to play him out of position in the few games that he did play? It doesn't make sense. Teams, teams are not looking at Zach Collins and thinking like, Hey, that's, you know, that's the guy that we absolutely need to think, Oh, that'd be a nice piece. Maybe we could turn him into something. Well, if, if that's how every other team views him, the Blazers should just be the team that holds on to him. Obviously, the issue here is that Yusuf Nurkic is very young. And, you know, if if Nurkic was 32, it might make sense to re-sign Zach Collins and kind of just groom him to be the center of the future. Nurk's 24. He is the center of the future. Contract situations could get in the way, and that'll be kind of get muddy because Dame and CJ are going to be owed a whole crap load of money over the next four or five years. So that's something that the Blazers will cross that bridge when they get there. Maybe that's something they view is that, hey, if Nurk's, if we keep Zach around, then we have more leverage in trying to re-sign Nurk because we know we have a guy who could plug in. But even as an optimistic Zach Collins fan, as a Gonzaga fan, as a Blazers fan, yeah, Zach Collins is not used to Nurkic, folks. <laughs> he's not. He's not going to be even close to that. I think his ceiling is a good NBA starting center. Good. Not great. Maybe top half in the league at his peak. But I think that there's a realistic chance that Zach Collins settles in as a above average backup center in the NBA, that that's kind of just the role that he adopts. He's not that similar of a player to Kelly Olenek. And you can understand why some might find this a lazy comparison because they went to college together or went to the same college, not together. But that's kind of what Kelly is. He's a low end starting center and a high end backup center. He has great games. He has great stretches. He has a lot of time where he's, you know, plays 20 minutes a night, scores eight to 10 points. And it's just kind of like another piece. Zach Collins could be that against different style of player in a lot of ways, but the level of production, the kind of role that you expect from him, I think that that's pretty reasonable to expect from Zach Collins. And I hope that it happens in a Blazers uniform because I think they want a high end backup to Yusuf Nurkic who has had injury issues and, is just, you know, you always want a good backup center. It's it's a pretty critical piece, especially if you're the Blazers and you've had a litany, 30 years of history proving that centers get hurt. More than most other teams in the NBA, they have that history. So I think that's Zach Collins' future in Portland. Unless a team swoops in and offers him a big contract to come be their starting center, which could happen, or just big money to be a backup center, then maybe he does that. But I think ultimately he comes back he settles in as Yusuf Nurkic's backup, and he becomes a pretty good backup center, one of the better ones in the league. That's kind of where I see him finishing up. All right, thank you so much to all of you for checking out episode two of the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show. We got to not only talk to Brian Kalbroski, who was outstanding, discussing all things NBA draft-related two days before the draft. We also got to talk about breaking news. I don't think this will be the last time that that happens where we get to talk about something as it's occurring. So check in every week, Mondays at 7 p.m. on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.